This week's episode of The Score is all about finding hope through music in troubled times. First up, we reflect on recent events here in Minneapolis and the blessed relief of Minnesota Opera's recent miniatures program. Next, we talk about the responsibility of opera makers and opera lovers alike to join the movement to stop Asian hate. Then, we'll tackle the question of how to safely and authentically invite BIPOC artists into predominantly white spaces. Diversity is a great first step, but is it effective without either equity or inclusion? And finally, as always, get your weekend off to the best start with a moment of pure black joy. This time with puppets, because everybody loves puppets. You know what time it is. It's time to check the score. Let's do it to it. Episode three of the score. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Minnesota Opera's first podcast, The Score. This is episode three. I am Rocky Jones, Director of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at Minnesota Opera, and I am here with Paige Reynolds and Lee Bynum. How are y'all doing today? Doing good. Doing good. Not too bad. Surviving. Yeah. 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 It's a a complicated uh, roller coaster of a time. (laughs) You can say that again. (laughs) You can say that again. So what's on your mind, Paige? Yeah, well, a couple things on my mind. Um, well, the all staff EDI training that we just did together and and those conversations are really present with me, as well as just uh, in our community. I, despite what I said about not watching any of the Derek Chauvin trial. Yeah, I remember you said that. <laughs> Y'all, I caved. I caved. Oh, no. I watched okay. some. I watched some. And but thoughts. I, I, it is just. I don't know. It's it, it it's hard to formulate thoughts right now. Like, I think to hear just these details from from witnesses is kind of bringing stuff back fresh all over again and um yeah it's it's interesting to hear you know these people who are who were there and who had all these different levels of expertise or Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, that told them like um mr floyd is not okay here like Mm -hmm. what's your what's happening is not okay like this is a deadly situation and all of that happening and understanding just how many people, you know, watched and were like, hey, maybe you should get off that man's neck. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and, you know, things still proceeding the way they did. Um, it was interesting. And having, and personally, a lot of like complicated feelings about what does uh, like justice look like. Mm-hmm. And 
a lot of people want like Derek Chauvin locked up and that is understandable. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm also thinking like, but how can we like get rid of the conditions that even cause this to happen in the Mm -hmm. first place? And like rethinking public safety as a whole because Derek Chauvin could be locked up for this or convicted and we still have the same conditions that allowed to happen in the first place. So complicated, complicated feelings. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. And part of the complexity of this, of course, is like the conditions that you mentioned, Paige, can pretty much all be summed up in one pithy little phrase, white supremacy, right? Exactly. And, you know, what is any of us to do about that? And, you know, (laughs) I don't have the solution to white supremacy this week. Um, Hit me again next Wednesday and I might have actually thought it through but <laughs> you cracked the code you did it <laughs> we're millionaires <laughs> but you know i i think this is the the thing that makes all of this so so hard to deal with that even as we are watching or not watching the trial every day there are other instances of exactly the same sort of thing happening right and some of them are making it into the the news before us and some of them really aren't you know and you know you get tidbits here and there on social media what have you and sometimes it feels like oppressively unsolvable and it can be very easy to sort of like catastrophize right you you just sit with it and you can't move beyond the feeling that this is the thing that marks the condition of being black in this country. And I I feel like for me, I've had to balance any news about the trial with the very, very great weekend that I just had where I actually got to go back home home to the Commonwealth of Virginia. My youngest sister got married and it was a beautiful distraction (laughs) for a week, not having to, to think about a lot of the things that are weighing me down in my everyday life. And, you know, now I'm back here in the Twin Cities, back to this kind of reality. And, you know, how do you really balance like a wedding, which is a celebration of life and and a way of looking towards the future and and thinking about the long-term sustaining of your family with what feels like forces in this country that are so set on destroying black love and destroying blackness. You know what I mean? And that's, it's a challenge. And what I usually do is kind of throw myself into music, right? And Mm -hmm. and listen to things created by black people that can take me out of that space. But it's, it's been hard. It's been really, really hard to do that with this. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel both of you. Um, for me, you know, a few days ago when we were talking about, you know, do we, do we want to talk about this on the podcast or not? And, you know, all of us had talked about, you know, whether or not to sort of watch the trial and sort of, you know, bring that back into our, our minds and our psyches and our bodies. Um, you know, for me, it was really a really difficult 
conversation because, you know, for me, I don't know. I mean, last summer just felt so traumatic. Um, so to your point, Paige, just looking at this system that was created to essentially kill us, you know, mm-hmm. if, if not mm-hmm. just confine us, then kill us. Um, and to see it in such stark relief, like on the nightly news, like nine minutes of this man just being executed in front of us, to me sent this, it, 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 it was this, this fear that we all feel all the time, but just like concentrated in this one, just like acute moment of just, mm. you know, cruelty um, and malice and ugliness um, and horror. Um, and so <laughs> to go back there, I know how important it is, um, but it just, it feels so, so difficult and so heavy and so important to do at the same time. So I've been um, following it as closely as I can, um, just kind of baffled at, you know, the moments where, you know, white supremacy, even like, well, whatever, even, like, especially like, you know, in the justice system, in the middle of the trial, the way it just sort of rears its ugly head, you know, the one of the witnesses, the the MMA fighter, Donald Williams, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the defense attorney getting up there and being like, well, you called him names. And he was like, uh-huh, I sure did. And it's like, <laughs> well, I mean, obviously we must discredit everything he said. He called a person who was murdering someone in front of his eyes names. <laughs> <laughs> and he's black. <laughs> we can't listen to him. <laughs> and just <laughs> so many of these moments um, that, you know, it, it's, and I don't, I don't mean to, to make jokes or to be disrespectful, but also that is part of the way that I deal with things is I'm a mm-hmm. Sagittarius. I make inappropriate jokes at inappropriate times. <laughs> <laughs> um but that's a, a really important point, though, Rocky, um, about sort of the ways folks seek to discredit these really mm-hmm. powerful observations around how people of color are affected by white supremacy. And, and I think a little bit about the brouhaha with um, uh, Meghan Markle mm-hmm. um, and Piers Morgan and Sharon Osbourne and, and other folks where they managed to point out that she has an extraordinary amount of privilege as if that somehow means that she could not be on the receiving end of, you know, discrimination. You know what I mean? And, and like, that's, a, that's such a curious thing for me that, that people have this sense that there is something mutually exclusive about being on the receiving end of racism and in some perhaps even, you know, really discreet quadrant of your life, you being a person of privilege or you being famous or having money or as some of the attacks against Meghan Markle have pointed out, that she's attractive as as if one has anything to do with the other. And it just really makes you wonder, you know, 
what is at the core of some of these arguments? Like, what is it really designed to point out? It It's very complicated. You know, I've mm-hmm. been studying race at the collegiate level for what feels like 200 years. It's been closer to 20, which is also a really long time to be in college. No comments necessary here. But, like, it's <laughs> just the fact that people don't want to engage with the realities of how white supremacy flattens everything. It just completely flattens things. It erases some of the lines that people want to hold on to as meaning that someone somehow really can't be a victim of something. And and that's mm-hmm. incredibly mm-hmm. disturbing to me. I mean, and that's exactly the way that I've described it to other people before, is flattening. You are just, yeah. you become yeah. two-dimensional. Yeah. Um, and it is so, like, you you no longer have, you know, siblings and parents that you love. You no longer have a favorite yeah. color or a favorite band or a favorite ice cream flavor. You yeah. just become this two-dimensional caricature in their eyes. And it's it's baffling and upsetting um, and horrific because I've been through that that same thing where I remember having a conversation with someone at a party and them saying, well, you know, you work in opera, you went to, you know, an Ivy League school, like, you don't actually, like, experience racism on the daily and I was like, mm, no, actually, <laughs> actually, like, you know, when I get on the bus and I go to work in the morning and that white lady grabs her purse, like she's yeah. not thinking like, oh, I am so scared of this Ivy League graduate. <laughs> like like, like that, that's not what she's thinking. So, right. right. And let it not be lost on us that a couple of years ago, there was that whole thing with Skip Gates being harassed by the police on his own property, which I can only imagine was steps away from, you know, campus of Harvard, right? So, like, even mm-hmm. that idea is patently ridiculous. But, I mean, this is this is a part of what you hear. And I can think of stories by people like Oprah Winfrey and Condoleezza Rice about experiencing racism at the height of their careers. Everybody in yep. the world knows mm-hmm. who Oprah Winfrey is. And, and that doesn't matter in those moments and she was just trying to get that mm-hmm. Hermes bag in Paris. It's <laughs> right, <laughs> <That's> right. not right. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> not right. <laughs> yeah, this is all like spot on. It's just all of us are going to experience racism at yeah. some point. Yeah. It's just a matter of which flavor. Mm-hmm. Um and However, we like do acknowledge that the flavor that you experience it in is like impacted by some things like like skin tone, you know, or uh, colorism or or class. But to be clear, all black folks are still going yeah. to experience and be negatively yeah. impacted by um, white supremacy in some way like all of us, even the Meghan Markles of the world, like that doesn't make you exempt. Like obviously like the, I guess severity of of some of the impacts we experience differently, but it's always, it's always there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Which, you know, brings me back to your point page earlier about changing this 
thinking about ways to change the system because it feels like, yes, even if Derek Chauvin is convicted and sent away to prison, which is definitely not a given, um, <laughs> like at all, you know, what are the conditions that we can, what, what is it that we can learn from this so that, mm-hmm. you know, we can live in a society where this is not something that we all have to experience on the regular. Um, and I don't have the question or the answer to that question rather, but, you know, I feel like that's the question that we all should be asking that, yeah. you know, if we could all just like see beyond this mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. and I know a lot of people are, are asking that question, but it doesn't feel like enough people are asking that question so that when this is, this trial eventually is over, um, that we have like this sort of critical mass of people who are saying, well, how can we change our approach to public safety? Um, and I don't, <laughs> I don't know where we go from from here, right. but I just, I hope we, that we can we can get to a place where we don't have to walk around feeling this way, feeling this heaviness all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and not to, you know, get get too preachy or you know, push no, any, preach any preach. any kind of. <laughs> You better you know, preach, preach. Not push my personal political agenda. Tell the but children. I will say that I am looking forward. <laughs> you know, I know, and I know. I'm gonna put you on game a little bit. I and am I know you forward. are. I know you are. <laughs> but I'm just saying, I don't think enough people are. Enough people are doing what you're doing. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. But to put y'all on game a little bit, if you know you want to do something, I'm really because of what you just said rocky like where do we go from here like what do how can we make things better um i'm really looking forward to just seeing what happens politically in minneapolis after Mm -hmm. this like there is a big um you know push for people to be able to amend the city charter and to reimagine policing or to you defund police as you've probably seen on the hashtags and what does something that actually keeps all people safe look like so i'm i'm that's what i have my eye on really going forward and um yeah there are some brilliant people who have been studying the entire history of the Minneapolis Police Department and have come to some amazing conclusions and recommendations for how we we move forward and I I just really look forward to those conversations I believe you can check out yes for Minneapolis um, as one of the first steps it's just for you know the people to be able to amend the charter in the first place yeah, there's there's a lot of things to learn. Like, I think part of this conversation also is just like demystifying for people just what kind of what we've voted for or supported with police departments, with city councils, with mayors. Like, how does that work? And I think some people are realizing like, oh, like some of these changes are pretty like (laughs) we thought we could just change this. But there's actually this whole network of 
bureaucracy to go through. So um, on a local level, I don't, I mean, I'm here, so I don't know what people, how people are talking about it on a national level, but I think here locally, that's been a really interesting part to, to see. I feel like maybe, maybe I was a little hasty before saying that not enough people or thinking about these things because I think enough people are thinking about this, these things. We just need to get more people mm-hmm. thinking about these things. And like you said, de- de- demystifying these issues because there are still people who don't know what we're talking about when we're talking about de- defunding the police. Um, and that's a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, Rocky, I, I, I'll go out on a limb and say if every American adult isn't actively thinking about these issues, then it isn't enough people, right? We are yes. all affected mm. by, yes. by this, right? Mm-hmm. This is a thing that's contouring the American experience. Before COVID, when I actually got to go places that were not in this country, a thing that people <laughs> would bring up was police brutality and gun violence here in America, right? And, and certainly our racial issues. And I don't think that there are enough of us who are invested in finding viable solutions in our own communities. And I think that is something we really need people thinking about, uh, along with any number of other things like affordable health care and the environment. Like there are lots and lots Mm -hmm. of things that we should be able to think about while at the same time keeping up with the Kardashians. Like we can multitask and we have to do (laughs) a much better job of considering the future. Because, you know, if I were Mother Earth, I'd be working actively to disgorge us from the planet because we are not <laughs> doing what we need to. I mean, she kind of is. Pan- yeah, we're about to get evicted. <laughs> this pancetta. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> she said, uh-uh, you're going to melt my polar ice caps? Uh-uh. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I got some. I got something for you. (laughs) So y'all got to find a new place to stay. (laughs) Well, I know this podcast is ostensibly about um, BIPOC folks and classical music, but you know you've got three black folks sitting here in Minneapolis, so you're gonna get a little bit of of Chauvin stuff. Um, So I hope you don't mind. I hope you will bear with us and continue to join us in this conversation because these are really really important and vital issues that as lee said every every american should be thinking about so thank you And of course, what's happening in the real world actively is shaping art. Yes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And whatever else 2020, uh, what, oh goodness, whatever marks 2020 will leave on all of us, I think there's a way that there's going to be a lot of art that reflects what last year was on any number of levels. And, you know, I, I think to kind of keep this focus on the work that we're doing at Minnesota Opera. You saw a lot of that with our miniatures, right? I think mm-hmm. they managed to reflect a lot of what people were feeling and experiencing. And I would imagine 
Lee, can you explain what miniatures was perhaps to people who don't know? Oh, absolutely. Oh, that was, you said that at just the right moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> miniatures is a commissioning program that we have that will be made annual going forward, Yay. whereby we are supporting local artists. The It's spelled M-N-I-A-T-U-R-E-S, really highlighting the fact that this is a way that we're thinking about the Minnesota community, right? And we are bringing in local artists to create works that sort of push back and redefine and explore, and in some instances, buttress and support the definition of opera. And we're looking at groups of people who are both diverse in their makeup, but also in their orientation towards the creation of the art itself. So we put out this program for folks to come in and create short operas um, between eight and 10 minutes, although I think most of them were just a tad longer. Um, and we brought them in and kind of said, if we gave you a certain amount of money and, and free reign, what kind of opera would you create, right? And four teams came in and created all kinds of fascinating pieces that reflected everything from you know, um, Vietnamese heritage to the experience of Black Americans in the so-called Karen phenomenon over the course of a century. And all four pieces are absolutely spectacular and thought-provoking. For sure. And they're on our YouTube page, and they may still be on the, the main Minnesota Opera page, too. And if they're not, they certainly link to the YouTube. And I encourage everyone... To check them out because they they really challenge and expand a what we think of as the operatic medium and b certainly who's creating it whose voices we're getting to hear and they were very diverse songwriting teams and i thoroughly enjoyed my small role in getting to work with them and it's something that i'm looking forward to the next round that i believe will be planned for this summer um so, yeah, and I, you know, we didn't give them any sort of mandate when we engaged them. So they created what was on their minds and hearts. And you did get a sense of how 2020 had really shaped and contoured how artists are approaching what it is that they do. And I know a lot of companies really took on this charge last year to create these digital works. Um, and I encourage everyone listening to check out any number of similar programs from opera companies across the country. I really like seeing this bit of development. I've watched um, works by at least four different companies and I've not had a single one that I didn't take something from that meant something to me personally. And if you're a writer, you know, be on the, the lookout for the posting that will come sometime in the next few months. Um, this is just a, a really great way to engage with us and for us to learn about who's out there and to help us to continue to think about who and what we're programming. I think there's a, there are a lot of opportunities for us to grow and opera companies are now realizing that Verdi and Puccini are not the only people who've ever written an opera. And I think it's important <laughs> to engage many, many more folks in the creation of this work. Absolutely. Agreed. You know, and I'll say when I, um, you know, I wasn't intimately involved 
with miniature, but I, miniatures, excuse me. Um, but I was able to meet um, a number of the artists. Um, and it was really exciting to see um, all of these different people, especially people of color, um, coming into our spaces and just getting free reign to create. So when like they finally came out and we finally got to see what it was that they had been working so hard on, it was transcendent. And usually, like, I I can be a little skeptical when it comes to stuff, a little cynical. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I found all of them just so moving. And it really was, like, after 2020, after all of the, the uprisings and the pandemic and just everything, and, and even just, like, personally, um, things that had happened um, in 2020 that was a moment of really pure hope Mm -hmm. Um, that like, okay. So once all of this calms down to a point where it sort of feels like some sort of semblance of quote unquote normal, um, as we move forward, um, these are the voices that we're going to get to hear. Mm. And that's so exciting. And that's so just, moving and cool um you know and as somebody who um loves art as much as i do who has participated in art who i you know as melodramatic as perhaps it sounds feels as (laughs) though art has saved my life um in a number at a number of, of critical junctures um to be able to be in the presence of such beauty um but also such truth um told expressed in such just a beautiful artful way um it's just so exciting it's so exciting and it it makes me excited to to do what i do um Mm -hmm. and to be able to in some small way um be a part of of getting that out to a larger audience it's it's just so cool it's so awesome i think i just thought miniatures was so cool I don't know what I went into it expecting. Uh, I thought I had like a really open mind, but I was still like pleasantly surprised by just like people's creativity. And I I can always appreciate when there's not only um, like just one or two like people of color or black Mm -hmm. folks or indigenous Mm -hmm. folks, but like diversity among people of color as well, like represented and all our different stories. So I really, really um, appreciated that. And I think what surprised me the most is how people played with visuals, Mm -hmm. like in, in different ways and, you know, a couple of them were, were, were staged and but there were costumes and there was illustration. I that part was all just pleasantly surprising to me. Like it was uh, made a kind of a, you know, cinematic experience as yes. well as an operatic one. I Absolutely. was I was sucked in and it was just the right length too. that. I was just. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. I'm curious if. um either of y'all had like a favorite either piece or moment in in one of the pieces i had um favorite moments in all of them and being a little closer to the creation i i think i got to be surprised a little bit less because i got to hear little 
snippets here and there and throughout, but one of the songwriting duos, um, Rebecca and Asako, was was comprised of two people who applied to the program as individuals. And during the um, during the period where we were vetting applications, I suggested that we pair the two of them. And, you know, um, Rebecca's work is, she's a, she's a poet, um, a playwright, um, and it's, her work is very much out of like the spoken word tradition. And um, Asako is a, a classical harpsichordist, um, very much out of the classical tradition. And I was very curious about how their work would come together, what would be produced, what it would look like, even though every one of my instincts said they will come together really, really beautiful. Um, and I am happy to report that I was right. Um, I, <laughs> I really appreciated um, how they approached what they created with almost this little wink towards you know baroque opera that still managed to have an extraordinarily um an extraordinarily like contemporary message and one of their um arias had a line that says something about you're on tv they're on tv we're all on tv i i may be misquoting and if that's the case i think that's right re-record this little section okay good um (laughs) Um, and I, you know, I think as we have just existed in this place of everybody interpreting every moment of their lives through taking pictures and videos on their cell phones, good, bad, or indifferent, that was something that just has stayed with me so much in the last couple of weeks since we saw that. Um, but beyond that, I was absolutely blown away with all four pieces and there are so many ways that I hope that as a company we will be able to continue to engage these artists and continue to promote the work that they do even if the opportunities do not arise for us to present more of their work. I just really appreciated it and as a newbie to the Twin Cities it was kind of amazing to see how much talent there is here and and I'm so happy now that I get to be a part of this community. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to that 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 point, you know, the Twin Cities, um, you know, has a tendency when I think when I first moved here, I was so struck by like how segregated it all seemed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And so to be able to see all of these different people and all of these different stories um, in in this one space mm. um was just so cool and so refreshing and made me kind of feel like, (laughs) you know, like a little bit like I was kind of at home again, Mm. Um, which was just, just a really nice comforting feeling. You know, when you asked that question, uh, my mind immediately went to the same piece that you did Lee. Um, But, you know, also lost bird, um, Charlie and owns piece was, so just so lyrical and mm-hmm. gorgeous yes. and mm-hmm. moving and the shadow puppetry was just so cool and inventive and yeah. it the story just felt so dreamy like you were getting like taken away on like this sort of 
emotional river uh, and the way that it it told the story that like at once was so specific but at the same time was like so universal um you know about you know losing a grandparent um and not feeling like you had enough time with them and wanting to know their whole story um and realizing that you hadn't gotten it and realizing how connected you truly are even though like at times you seem so far apart, whether that's far apart in time or far apart in location. Mm-hmm. Um, I just found that to be just, you know, especially as someone who's, you know, my grandmother just turned 100 years old. Ooh, Shout out to Miss. Yes. Shout out to Miss Eula Jones in <laughs> South Carolina. <laughs> yes. I love you, Grandma. Um, but yeah. But, you know, especially, you know, I feel so lucky that, you know, she's still here um, and we still get to, like, have the benefit of her wisdom. Um, And so, like, that that story just it just got me right in the feels. (laughs) But But what about you, Paige? Yeah, I first of all, also loved them all. I was like, I don't know if I'm just more mushy lately or if people are creating more emotional art or which one. But either way, I'll be in my feels watching these (laughs) stories. My absolute favorite, though, was Xylem because it brought together two things Mm -hmm. I love, which is South Asian music, and stop motion animation. I said, oh, this is for me. This They did this for me. <laughs> I have loved South Asian musical theater ever since studying abroad in India while mm-hmm. I was an undergrad. And just like not just hearing it, but also just watching like the musicians on stage and like them always being a part of the experience even when you have dance, there's, you know, the instrumentalists and the dancers and the vocalists. And I thought it was so cool how you had that, but also this stop motion animation and the puppets being made out of out of different interesting looking materials. It was just so like, ugh, just, yeah. <laughs> just audio and visually like rich just a a feast so i i really enjoyed that one it was a little i think probably because it felt kind of like escapist in (laughs) in a moment (laughs) that that i could have used it it was like whoa this is you know diving into a whole whole new world and especially so with you know having a musical a couple musical genres uh, incorporated that you do not hear in what we call opera yeah. usually, but yeah. that is so operatic. I was like, this yeah. makes perfect sense. Like, yeah, a lot of, you know, South Asian stories will be completely sung or all played or or danced through. It just, yeah, was genius to marry the two. So, yeah. yeah. Shout out to all the artists of miniatures. Y'all are well, brilliant. I also wanted to just say a few things about uh, Kashimana and Kari's piece as well, Don't Tread on Me. Mm. Um, And it's the kind of piece that always would have resonated with me. My dad was a huge, huge, huge proponent of educating people on Black history, literally at any moment of the day, any context. There was nothing too big or too small that didn't deserve a history lesson 
about the black experience in America and the fact that they took their opportunity to touch on the black experience in 1920, 1970, and then again in 19, I'm sorry, in 2020, as we had talked about before with the the Karen phenomenon. I just thought it was so clever, such a beautiful piece. And it's one of the ones that I really hope that somehow, some way can be expanded because I thought the messages that they were bringing forward were so potent, so powerful. And I think it kind of deserves a longer treatment where audiences really get to sit with what this means in, in a new kind of way. And I also just really appreciated the genres of music they were bringing into conversation with opera. And, you know, I know that the point of this particular podcast isn't to revisit all four of the miniatures, but I think each of them just leaves you with something different about what it is to be alive right now, right? Um, So, yeah, I was over the moon with all of them. And I hope that Maybe we can put something in the program notes for this week so that anyone listening can also on their own, not just look up these pieces, but really engage with these artists and their work because they absolutely deserve to have their work being thought about and seen and hummed and sung even outside of miniatures. Absolutely. Yeah, please, please look in the show notes. I will, I will put something in the show notes um, that will point y'all in the right direction. And I hope you all get to um, experience these for yourselves, um, whether um, at mnopera.org or um, on our YouTube channel, um, because they are well worth your time. Absolutely. And if you, like us, sort of need a moment of respite, a little (laughs) bit of joy, (laughs) a little bit of creativity in your life right now, um, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find something um, cooler. So check it out. Miniatures. All right, and we're back. Um, So our last episode, um, we recorded it two days before um, the shootings in Atlanta. And so we felt like we would be remiss if we... Uh, did not say something um, during this episode. Um, Perhaps you're living under a rock and uh, (laughs) you did not, um, you know, you're you're not aware of perhaps what we're talking about. Um, But a few weeks ago in Atlanta, um, an armed gunman uh, targeted three AAPI businesses in the Atlanta area, killing eight people, including... Uh, seven uh, AAPI folks, six AAPI women. And, you know, we here at Minnesota Opera, here in the Twin Cities, you know, we have a a huge AAPI community, um, number of people um, and communities that we work with. And so we felt that it was very, and still feel, um, that it's very important to speak out because obviously this is not the only incident um, that has happened this year or this century or the past few centuries um, here in America of you know anti-Asian uh, hatred, um, and we want to condemn it in the strongest and clearest terms. 
And send our love and our solidarity to our AAPI siblings out there. And unfortunately, we know your pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's, it's even it's hard to continue because the empathy is so real, um, mm, you yeah. know, especially after living after, through 2020. Well, especially living through the last like 400 years. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, especially after, you know, all of 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 the most recent events, um, it's it's terrible. It's horrible. And, you know, our conversation about white supremacy um, earlier and just the havoc that it wreaks on our psyches and our bodies, um, you know, it's horrific. So, you know, all of us, you know. That, you know, releasing a statement, you know, obviously is the the literal least we can do. Um, and having this conversation on this podcast, you know, actually, you know, if we, you know, want to talk about doing things, there are, you know, plenty of things you can do. There are organizations you can volunteer with, donate to. Um, on Monday, actually, I, I took a, uh, a bystander training um, class uh, organized and uh, co-sponsored by the uh, by Asian Americans Advancing Justice and a group called Hollaback. And it actually gave like some really, really, really great techniques um, for disrupting um you know, violence and harassment um, when you see it. Um, We all have a different part to play, Mm -hmm. so it's not about, like, necessarily jumping in there and throwing hands um, if that's not your (laughs) thing or you got your kids (laughs) with you or whatever. Um, (laughs) But, like, really, you know, know, being able to distract um, from what's going on or document um, the harassment that you're seeing. Or if you do feel like... Um, you're able to um, step in there and actually intervene. Um, some tips um, to keep yourself safe and to keep the person being harassed, um, keep their safety in mind as well. Um, so I know that that's something that they're going to be continuing to do throughout the spring. So I highly recommend um, you go and check them out. Um, you know, that is one of the things, one of the statistics that I learned is that you know, 75% of people who have experienced harassment um, wished, um, felt as though it would be helpful um, if somebody were to, um, who was able, could intervene on their behalf. And yet in only 29% of cases, people actually do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to close that gap um, okay. is something that I know that I really um, am taking to heart. And it's something that I'm really um, wanting to do, planning to do uh, in the future um, to show my solidarity. Um, yeah, for sure. I, you know, as a as a black queer person, I feel like as a way of life, I have felt unsafe in most every space. Right. And this is not an experience I would wish on anybody anywhere. And I think to whatever extent you have a voice and an inclination and a will to see things be different, make noise about this in any way that you can. If you are an artist reflected in your art, if you are someone with access to material resources, please donate. If you are a person who has time or you know any kind of platform, this is not something any of us should be silent about. Silence is deadly. 
and it feels like the number of people in our society who have to feel unsafe every day is growing and not shrinking, right? And we can think of a million different reasons why that is, but now is not the time to be quiet about this. And I implore everyone who is listening to give real thought to whatever you can do in your own space to make a difference here. Absolutely. And I think with that, I just want to like also uplift that uh, a couple things that a like because you know, we're black folks on this podcast. We unfortunately understand this um, type of targeted hate um, and are also fully aware of the ways that our communities have been pitted against each other by white supremacy. And I want to just urge people to be honest and brave with each other about that history, but to also not play into the hands of white supremacy and do their job for them. Like yeah. we don't need further division. Like mm-hmm. we, we, we really don't. Part of, you know, how we do this is, is by uniting, is by, you know, solidarity, not uh, fighting with each other, but, you know, being real, just being honest about um in constructive in constructive ways about you know the history between especially you know amongst people of color in general Mm -hmm. like it's it's the one thing all our separate issues with white people but then there's the stuff that you know is just between just between us and i feel like we can speak out against violence that our communities experience and talk to each other about what we do to each other at the same time. We can, we can absolutely do both. Um, Cause the bottom line is that, you know, we don't wish this violence like this on anybody. No, ever. God no. God no. Like ever. Like <laughs> uh, we can all agree. We, we don't want this America's issue of mass shootings. Like what, the, what is, what is life? None of us want it to be happening. So we can reunite on that front. Absolutely. <laughs> Isn't it just something that, like, you know, we're on, hopefully, the tail end of this panoramic and, you know, we're opening (laughs) things up and then all of a sudden we're just, like, uh, we're getting back to normal. No, not this normal. You can keep that normal. Like, like, no, what? Why does America getting back to normal mean getting back to mass shootings? Mass shootings. Right. Why? Y'all already know the answer to that. Yeah, well. The... The other thing that, of course, we have to mention about this is uh, the opera is definitely implicated when it comes to uh, anti-Asian sentiment or racism um, That's... in perpetuating stereotypes that cause a lot of harm to various AAPI folks Yeah, in... Uh, different very various types of disenfranchisement and you know i won't i won't go into it because you know hopefully we'll just have someone on the show one day who is asian who can speak to you know their experiences in opera but we can all see on the stage and just looking at i I mean we're talking about pieces that are performed frequently in problematic Mm. ways like that are not not just not just under wraps in the in the repertoire, like that are pieces that are put front and center. So 
we really have some some questioning to do um, of each other within the industry about why we find it so important to put these characters or stories on stage that Asian people are telling us are oppressive, are harmful. Why do we still insist in, in performing them in the ways that we do? And as audience members, we have a responsibility to vote with our feet and really think mm. about where we are putting our dollars and to whom we are giving audience with a lot of this because it should be very clear to us at this point in time that certain types of representations are both inappropriate and unnecessary in addition to being fully dangerous, right? And I think Mm -hmm. what we saw in Atlanta is one of myriad examples of how deadly and dehumanizing certain kinds of presentations and representations of people can be, right? And there's a lot more that I think all of us can do in terms of recognizing that it's not funny, it's not cute, it's not okay. And the, and you know, the sort of cover we've given to people in terms of dehumanizing other people for the sake of a laugh or a song just absolutely has to stop. There's there's no reason for us to be in 2021 and pretending like we're confused about how dangerous many of these representations are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, we just really wanted to just send our love out to our AAPI siblings once again. And uh, we see you, and we hear you, and we love you, and um, we love you. Period. 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 Much love, much solidarity, all of that. So as a companion piece to our earlier discussion about miniatures and how we at the company have sought to diversify the creators of opera that we engaged, we wanted to have a broader conversation with what does it really mean to engage creatives of color, right? And I think some really exciting things have happened recently, not the least of which the Metropolitan Opera has signed the Black Opera Alliance is pledged, which is a a really important step forward, I think, for the whole field in terms of acknowledging that there is a lot more work that we need to do to be an art form that is hospitable to the full breadth of people who live in this country. While at the same time, something that recently happened at Tulsa Opera is a reminder that there is just a lot more work that we all need to be doing really to, and if I can borrow from a a great thinker I know, engage with the blackness of it all, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what (laughs) does it really mean to be in this space structurally, culturally, and politically? So we wanted to take a few minutes today just to talk about what our perspectives as Black opera administrators are with regards to 
bringing new people into the fold and, and really appreciating, supporting, and placing their work where it needs to be in the same way that we have done for generations with the, the work of folks like, you know, Wagner and Mozart. Well, can I, I, can I start with a question? I would love that. <laughs> well, just for the people who um, perhaps don't know, um, maybe you could talk a little bit more about the Black Opera Alliance and their pledge. Sure. Um, the Black Opera Alliance is, you know, <laughs> as the name would suggest, a group of, you know, Black people who have affiliations with opera, right? Some of them are administrators, some of them are singers or composers, some are other types of creatives, and some are just interested audience members who came together, created a pledge. Um, I believe there are eight discrete planks in it that are really asserting here are places where we feel like the field has not been meeting the needs of of black artists and here are some suggestions around what you can do and they've opened the space to a variety of companies to sign the pledge or to respond you know sort of in kind with what it is that they plan to do relative to making opera more hospitable to black people um, and at Minnesota Opera, we have been doing a lot of the work in the space for years now, many years, certainly before I came to the company. And we've made some real headway. And these are areas where we are continuing to do work and having broad conversations with the whole community around what do we really need to do to show up for people of color and not only African-Americans, but much more broadly, like where as a company do we need to be so that we can support the work broadly and robustly and thoughtfully, right? Absolutely. So, mm -hmm. you know, one of the, the things that I wanted to bring to the fore today was like the idea that we need to be both specific and intentional when we are inviting artists of color to in to create things, right? We need to be really, really mm -hmm. thoughtful about the broad context that a given artist may experience. If we're talking about having someone, having a black person, for instance, come in and create an opera, right? Where are the specific places culturally and politically they may be seeking to address something, right? Structurally, and when I say structurally, I, I may also mean aesthetically, artistically, what is it that they are looking to communicate? How does it need to be communicated? And how is this different from the ways that we have proceeded to create opera traditionally, which is not based in anything that is, you know, sort of rigidly constructed, like this is what opera is, but is instead conversant with the actual period, time periods and societies in which many of our most esteemed opera creators were working at the time, right? Many of these things have shifted. We are now talking about America in 2021, right? So in some mm -hmm. ways that means like the instrumentation that is available to us is different. That yeah. means that when we're talking about singers of color in particular, their training and predilections and interests may be different from, you know, the folks for whom operas were being written for 
50 years ago, 100 mm-hmm. years ago, 200 years ago. And it also may mean that the audience itself is different, right? And the messages that they wish to convey to those particular audiences may really need to be considered before a given company says, hey, let's come in and maybe find itself in a place where they're not able to support all of the work that's being created or where they feel like this doesn't fit what it is that this company believes that it's constituted to do. And I think one of the things that is really, really important is for individual companies to have those conversations about where their political dispositions are, where their aesthetic interests are, and where their sort of artistic vision may lead them because this isn't a one-size-fits-all thing, right? And I think that there has been a bit of a rush to respond to much of what came up for the field last summer where you know there were some really important things that came down the transom of social media that were really pointing out the ways that not just opera classical music more broadly right because i think we are not in a different boat than orchestras are whatsoever we are not in a different boat than (laughs) ballet companies and also theater which in a lot of ways has been more progressive has dropped the ball quite a bit right so like what kinds of conversations do we as companies need to have about preparing ourselves to present this work to stand behind it to show up for artists and in some instances to be in a different kind of conversation with our traditional audiences around why are we doing this you know and and i think one of the things that comes up a lot for me in my role is what does it really mean for traditional audiences when we're trying to engage new audiences? And, and I think, as I say frequently, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? No one is suggesting that we throw out the baby with the bathwater, but it does mean sometimes that we really have to unpack certain bits of performance praxis, right? And there also may be instances where there have been works that we have performed a certain way for a very long time, that until we really understand all of the dynamics of how audiences are experiencing them, maybe we're not going to touch certain things right now. Maybe there are other pieces that we really need to sort of jar out of the the mode of thinking that has existed around them for decades. And then in other instances, maybe what we really do need to do is have a completely new group of people coming in to help us interpret things. And Each of those is going to be something specific for every company, every piece, and every audience that they're thinking about, right? And for us here at Minnesota Opera's, Minnesota Opera in the Twin Cities in 2021, this is a very specific conversation, right, around where certain communities are and how do we have a a line to these communities where we are saying with intention and with specificity, we see you, we want you to be represented in our art because that's the way that we have you in our audience. Like, And this isn't supposed to be something transactional, right? This is supposed to be about a fundamental rethinking of why we exist, for whom we exist, and what that needs to look like. And I know that these are not easy conversations to have, especially given the demographics of who typically works at these companies, right? But one of the things that I will implore to our colleagues, both here at Minnesota Opera and in other places, that we really give some thought to how we're opening the door and whom is being invited in, 
You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be a company that's actively engaged with the community around us? And the demographics of our community really ought to match the demographics of the company, you know? And, and I think these are some of the questions, some of the hard questions that we have to ask ourselves before we just say, let's just produce something, right? Like, there's a responsibility that is assumed in these moments. And I think we have to, like, have these conversations to their natural end and really be prepared for what's going to come out on the other end because it doesn't always serve companies to move in a direction if they are not fully prepared for what that means. I feel like where we really need to be here is asking ourselves a series of questions about for whom we are producing art, how we are producing it, can we support the work of the artists that we're engaging? How do we show up to support those artists? And what does it mean to for those of us who are responsible for casting these pieces and putting together the creative teams? How do we do this with intention? How are we thinking about the entire message that's going out to be able to say to audiences, we want you reflected in our art in a way that is not transactional. We want our communities to be reflected in terms of their demographics and what we're doing, right? We've taken upon ourselves to call ourselves Minnesota Opera. That actually means that there's a responsibility for us to be engaged with the people who really live here. What does that look like, right? And I think the easiest part of this that I think companies are really starting to make sense of is that our boards and our company staffs really need to be comprised in a way that we can see the community matching these groups, right? Most of us are not there, like by any stretch of the imagination, but at least companies saying to themselves, hey, we need to diversify. This isn't like a radical idea right now, but what it means in execution is still something that I think we have to continue to challenge ourselves. And again, it's, you know, structural, you know, parenthetically aesthetic, it is cultural and it's political because all of these are the pieces that come together to create art, right? And one thing I also wanted to pick up on that Paige said a few days ago in a meeting is how are we thinking about dramaturgy in this process, right? Mm-hmm. Like how are we actually thinking about the the broad messages that come from a piece when we decide to put that on? And I think we as opera companies need to make better use of the individuals out there, dramaturgs, who have the training and the wherewithal to help us to make these connections in a more substantive way. I think that there's just a lot more that we could be doing um, professionally to support the artistic vision of creators of color and to be more responsive to audiences. Agreed. That's a a lot of questions. (laughs) We only have an hour. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I... To your to your point, I have all often experienced, um, you know, in these spaces that a lot of people are like, you know, when we say like diversify, we need to diversify, diversify. They, they're thinking that diversity is enough. Right. That as right. long as you have brown faces and black faces and Asian faces, like indigenous faces, like in the room, 
doing exactly what you want them to do in the way that it's always been done. Like, that's enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, but it's like, you got to like, you know, season that with some equity and some inclusion where it's their, their experiences, (laughs) um, their opinions, their artistic vision, their creativity, those things also matter. And what I've always said is that, you know, all of that stuff can exist. The Mozart, the the Wagner, you know, people in, in powdered wigs, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and tights, like all of that stuff can still exist. Um, but if we're going to push forward, truly push forward and, you know, preserve um, the legacy of this art form for future generations, it's going to require like a radical reimagination yeah. of what all mm-hmm. of this is. And it doesn't mean that that can't exist, that, that that pretty Puccini opera over there, like we can't ever perform that ever again. But we do have to think about Cho Cho San and, mm-hmm. you know, how we're going to portray her. And if we feel like we can't tell that story in a responsible way, that doesn't make, you know our AAPI communities feel horrible, (laughs) then like we don't get to actually do that anymore. But also over here, as we're bringing new people into our spaces, it, we have to start to radically reimagine just even what an opera is, even at its basis level. Like we know that it's a story that's being told through unamplified singing and, um, you know, with a group of musicians providing the score. Well, we have to think about, you know, an orchestra, redefining an orchestra. And I know that's scary for so many people. Like, it, yeah. it means like, oh, God, like, do we have to throw all of the violins away? And like the violinists, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, don't get any work ever again. No, that's not what we mean. But what we do mean is, well, you know, for hundreds of years, like an orchestra has consisted of, you know, strings, brass, percussion, woodwinds. Well, let's think about like some other woodwinds, like <laughs> from other parts of the world. Let's think about some Asian in- instruments. Let's think about African instruments. Let's think about like ways that we can take this music, take a piece of music and transform it in a way that reflects you know, the stories of the other, like, six billion people on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> like, we can, we can actually do that, and it can be just as big and grand and imaginative and, you know, spirit you away to this new faraway land um, that's exciting and moving, um, but is different and reflects the 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 experiences of of different people of people of color of queer people of disabled people all of those people have a place in the opera house but we just have to like let them in and then actually yeah. listen to them and then actually take action <laughs> yeah yeah support it robustly and and i feel like you know some of my favorite operas fall under the the broad heading of verismo and I think if we really want to think about why some of those were so powerful is they were completely conversant with the world around them at the time. And now here we are 
a hundred years later, right? And and I think that it's really important for the actual continuation of the art form for us to feel like opera is continuing to speak to people who are alive right now, who are having experiences right now, who who want to see what they feel and understand reflected in this art form, right? Otherwise, it's a museum piece. And not that there's anything wrong with museums, but this isn't necessarily the way that this art form is going to be able to sustain itself. And I think that that's something that we really have to sit with. What does it mean to reflect the world around us? What does it mean to really have our doors open to new individuals and to new creators? Like, what what are we supposed to be doing to bring that about? Yeah, yeah. Like, what are we... To both of your points, I think it's about... I, I also think it's about, you know, not just welcoming in creators of color or any marginalized community, but... Um, we think of like what's really needed to diversify and do it successfully. Like there's a cultural, I think, shift that needs to happen that we don't talk about as much. Like it's like invite in more people of color, invite in more queer folks, but then what's the like culture that they experience when they get there? Mm -hmm. What's the creative process they experience when you get there? Mm -hmm. I think, one thing I, I'd, I'd really like to see in opera, and I, I'm saying I would like to see fully aware that maybe people already doing it, and I'm just not aware. So please uh, hit us up um, if you know. But I would love to see different kinds of ways of thinking about process. Like, what is your creative process, and what kind of space is it? Like, is it a safe space for creators of color? Is it, are there some things that maybe you're just like, well, well, we always do it this way, or we always have this type of schedule. We always do it like this, but it's actually, you know, stifling the work and, and how people get to engage with it. I thank you for bringing up dramaturgy, Lee, because I mean, most of, I've probably mentioned it on the show before, but most of my background is in theater, as in non-operatic theater. And one thing that, you know, has struck me working at a at Minnesota Opera for almost three years now is just the difference in, in process. You know, I'm often used to there being a lot more dramaturgy just before you even start rehearsing the piece or you have some mm -hmm. some directors in theater love like to have several table reads throughout the project mm -hmm. so that you can everyone can be on the same page about what it means i've been i've been stage manager for projects where we have an initial table read and then halfway through the process you discover something different about the story or it's landing differently in people's bodies and especially the bodies of marginalized people and it's like okay wait we need to do another table read because we're not right. all on the same page about what's right. about what's happening or about what's landing or we may need to reevaluate this uh scene where there's assault or this scene where there is something else violent happening or this scene where characters experiencing um, misogyny and we need to talk 
like through that and yes if, if you know people or you're one of those people in opera who is who is thinking about that and your processes i would love to know because i think that will really benefit um especially especially artists of color mm-hmm. and i think also people of all marginalized communities really when we can have more in-depth conversation about what's really happening especially in this in this music that's been performed for a long time because it's just become well it's always done like this or you know you do it like this and and this and this and yeah i'm interested in breaking that breaking that down more yeah you know and i think you know it it all reflects sort of the systems of oppression that live outside of the opera house Mm. And they're just reflected in these processes. And so, uh-huh. yeah, absolutely. Disrupting that, being able to create in a space where you do feel empowered to show up as your authentic self, to bring your lived experience, your opinions, the things that excite you, the things that motivate you, the things that make you sad, the things that make you angry. Um, and to be able to express that all in a space that doesn't feel oppressive um, you know, and I think it probably goes back to like our very first initial, you know, conversation about like just eliminating that white supremacy culture um, everywhere. Um, yeah. And how do we do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Still figuring that out. <laughs> Still figuring Still it out. Still figuring that out. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just so interested in, you know, seeing any creators of marginalized communities who are coming into opera be more supported Mm -hmm. in in doing so. Like, not just, we'll pay you to make this opera about (laughs) whatever people of color are experiencing. Just just write about it or just, just sing about it. Like, like, and have em, there be more em, of a conversation than that? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like Emmett, Emmett Till. That was, he was a, he was a, he was a black person, right? Write a, write an opera right. about that. Okay, but can we can we <laughs> stay away from? Yeah, can we just like you know keep it like positive though? Yeah. Like talking about Emmett Till, but keep it positive a little, though. A little like, less, a little less murdery. Right. <laughs> like, but that's really what we have. <laughs> We're joking, but that's exactly what happens. Like. You know, often, uh, you know, companies want to, and I'm not just talking opera, I'm talking across the spectrum of any kind of art, who want to engage with the, with people of color and our experiences, but don't want the ugly parts. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> they mm-hmm. want like a, a nice, just, you know, palatable program. Or they and... do want the ugly parts, but only the ugly parts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, none, and not directed at them, not directed no, at any, not directed yeah. at them, and but none of the joy, none of the excitement and love, but just just suffering, just a a big three hour wall of suffering. Mm. Which, <sighs> and I, I think where where this has to where some of the shifts have to happen right because this is like a a profoundly structural challenge. Um, is really in one, being able to identify the appropriate leaders who can lead an organization through how complicated this conversation is, right? And can really take a stand and say, hey, this is what is important for us to show on the other side and really put you know, resources behind it in some instances, 
her, his or their name on the line in terms of saying, no, this this is what we're doing, right? So that's a piece of it. And then two, really being able to find those stories that audiences of color are going to find resonant and they will show up. Because a piece of this that we can't really leave out is that we're talking about opera companies that are in America right now. And America is a place that has been contoured completely by capitalism, right? Mm. So the, the thing is, we also have to make sure that we are finding the audiences, we're doing the stories, and then we are demonstrating to our colleagues, like, telling these stories isn't causing us to go broke. Like, there is <laughs> exactly. an, inv- an investment that we're making, because opera is super expensive to produce, even, like, at the very small scale, right? Like, opera is, is not like certain other art forms where it's generally in the main easy to execute on a shoestring budget like that that is definitely a challenge of of the creation process and really figuring out like how do we do this in a way where we can push the whole field for it and some of that is being able to respond to that right and one of the things that i feel like I want to be able to do more of, and I hope I can figure out what this looks like in the Twin Cities context, is identifying those companies which are probably smaller, that are probably um, led by BIPOC people, right? That are really taking certain kinds of chances and really supporting them, right? Supporting them, uplifting them, using whatever platforms that I have access to to be able to say this work is important and we need to acknowledge it because I think part of how you're going to be able to represent to the entire field that this is important is by showing the many ways that like this is actually viable because that is a thing that is a challenge here. There are lots and lots of BIPOC companies that are out there that are doing great work that is meaningful and artistically satisfying and impressive and thought-provoking, but aren't really getting the opportunities to sort of move out of their spaces. They're, they're not the ones that are necessarily capturing the national ima- imagination, right? And I think if we look back a couple years ago on to Hamilton, it, I, I think what managed to be so interesting about Hamilton is the way that it caught fire nationally in the media, not necessarily because it was the first musical to employ hip hop, it certainly wasn't, but like the ways that people were forced to respond to its success. And I think we need to be able to figure out what are the stories that are going to catch fire in this way that people are going to be forced to pay attention to the work that's already happening in the space and the people who have been toiling for years and years to push the the form forward but just haven't necessarily had the material success that's going to give them the platform where everybody's going to pause and say hey this is something we should all be thinking about right now because no matter how we slice it like this is part of the universe in which we exist so i i think that it's like a multi-pronged thing right and i hope that in discovering that there are many complications to doing this work companies aren't going to become trepidatious and pull back and stop doing it. I I hope people see that there are challenges and then sort of push through and continue to sort of think through solutions and continue pushing 
forward in producing the art and, and engaging the artists and, and taking chances because I feel like our collective future is wrapped up in our being able to let go of a a past that is not serving us right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of my biggest fears is that, you know, and I think we, I think Lee, you and I had a conversation about this once a long time ago, um, where, you know, I guess I was having a, a more cynical moment <laughs> where it's just like, you know, here we are in this new administration and like people are going to think like, oh, like we can put EDI on the back burner. That was just right. something that we were right. upset about, like, while Voldemort was in office. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's, 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 it really is the challenge. And I really, that really resonates with me. You know, what you're saying about, you know, finding that thing that really catches fire, that causes people to really reckon with um, these ideas, um, yeah. you know, in opera, especially. Um, yeah. And so I, I wonder, if, if, is there anything for you right now, um, any examples um, of things that you, you, you've seen or heard that for you are, are doing that, are, are pushing those, those things forward? Actually, you asked that at just the right moment. Oh, um, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a psychic. <laughs> um, so there was... Um, a project happening at Opera Philadelphia um, that I've mentioned to you, I think to you both like offline, not on the podcast, that I was really taken with. And part of my entree to it in the interest of full disclosure is a group of folks um, with whom I am close were working on one of the projects. So I got to be a part of it from beginning to end and hear lots and lots about it. But I felt like the thing that was really, really great about it wasn't just that they were thoughtful about um, the composers that they employed, but they were also very thoughtful about supporting their individual unique processes, right? And one of the composers, um, Courtney Bryan, someone with whom I went to graduate school, um, has a process that is very improvisational, like in jazz music, right? Um, and they were very supportive of that process and giving space to the artists with whom she was working to create in the ways that they wanted to create the music, right? And the music was absolutely gorgeous. The, the singing was beautiful. The, the videography was stunning. The, the lyrics were, were really, really wonderful. And I thought, like, if you take this as like an encapsulated experience, like I, I like the approach from beginning to end. No, granted, I wasn't working on the administrative side where I usually work, and, and perhaps that was a bit more complicated. But from what my understanding was in terms of how to receive an audience, I'm sorry, how to receive a um, diverse set of creators, I actually thought that was really, really powerful. And it's something that I've wanted to bring into my own praxis as an administrator. Um, and some of the other pieces that were created for this by um, Tyshawn Story and Angelica Negron were also really fantastic. Um, 
Angelica's piece included Sasha Valore, and if there are any Drag Ooh. Race fans, yes. and I certainly hope I there are so some Drag Race fans. Oh my god, I <laughs> never get over that lip as long as I live and six months after I die. I will always be moved by that. I but mean, like, I feel so bad for um, uh, uh, Chez Mm-hmm. How could I not mm-hmm. come up with Shake Alay? And uh, I mean, <laughs> like, she must have just been traumatized for years. But she said it was so the in all wig stars. snatch Ugh. of the century. Oh, I mean, that I, poor thing. Oh, my God. I, I wasn't ready for it. And I hope mm-hmm. my own hair stays firmly attached to my head after seeing that because it was everything about it was, was kind of stunning, right? And each of these pieces that were part of the, you know, uh, Philadelphia's project were stunning in their own way, right? And I and I just thought this is an instance of where we as a field can learn a bit about how do you make space for creators to do what it is that they do and and really think about what it means on the administrative side to construct something that people leave saying, wow, this was really positive as an experience, right? These are the kinds of things that, you know, I strive to do as an administrator. And because I am not typically on the creative side here at Minnesota Opera, I don't have a multitude of opportunities to to engage with artists to find out, am I getting this right? Um, But because one of the creatives involved with this piece is my husband, I, I actually did get to hear him talking about this was a really positive experience and as a person who composes and sings for a living like you know he found a lot of what was constructed to be meaningful because he didn't feel like it was obliterating his space to create as a man of color right so that that's something that's really really stuck with me and I'm looking for opportunities in my work at Minnesota to make sure that that is the kind of experience that I'm creating for those um, with whom I collaborate. That's beautiful. That's dope. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So now it is time for my personal favorite segment. Um, as usual, we will send you off into the weekend with a PB&J, a little slice of pure black joy um, to nourish your soul. <laughs> and uh, today's PB&J comes from uh, Mr. Lee Bynum. Yay. Yay. Well, in an effort to counterbalance the heaviness of the earlier portions of the show, I wanted to talk about two things really quickly that I've seen in the media that have just absolutely tickled me. Um, The first one is about Sesame Street and the addition of two new Muppets, Wes and Elijah, who are created to resemble African-Americans. And for those of you who don't know, which is probably literally everybody listening, um, I have an extensive background in puppetry. Do you? Um, I, I didn't really? know that. Yeah, I really, really thought that I was going to work professionally as a puppeteer, and I've actually, I well, I have worked professionally as a puppeteer. I thought I would be a puppeteer with my life, um, but instead wow. I have to settle for being a Muppet, <laughs> which my husband frequently <laughs> reminds me of. Um, but actually seeing that Sesame Street has taken on, you know, like, 
really being thoughtful about what it means in terms of phenotype and human experiences to be a person of color, a black person, and are finding ways to integrate this into Sesame Street is something I find really, really inspiring. I think the two Muppets are super cute. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, 35 years ago when I was watching Sesame Street would have moved me fundamentally and I would have held on to for my entire life. Representation matters. Kids need to see themselves reflected in the things that they're watching. And I am super excited about like the fact that this is just explicit representation of black people on Sesame Street as Muppets, <laughs> not just, you know, you know, Olivia, for instance, who the the great Elena Reed Hall, God rest her soul, was one of my all time favorite performers. Um, but I think this is also super important for kids to see. Yeah, one of the best tweets I've seen in a while, it's Elmo and he's sitting next to the two of them and the caption's just like, but what if Elmo is singing along to Elmo's favorite song? Then can Elmo say it? (laughs) (laughs) Teach the kids early. Exactly. Teach the kids early. Oh, that was amazing. (laughs) Um, So then my second piece of pure Black joy comes in wanting to acknowledge Abina Appiah, who was first the first African-American woman to represent the United States in the Miss Grand International pageant. I don't know a ton about the pageant world, um, but I do really like when there are firsts, right? Mm -hmm. And she went on to win the pageant, and one of the gowns she wore was a literal Black Lives Matter. Oh, I saw that. Right? And it had the names of several African-Americans who were, unfortunately, the victims of police brutality, including George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, and their names and images appeared on a really beautiful gown. I had been scouring the internet trying to determine who made the gown so that I could acknowledge that person too. What I've been able to find is that Vest Alternative, which I believe is in Manila, the Philippines, um, actually produced the dress. I'm not exactly sure which designer there did it, but you should show Abina some love and you should show Vest Alternative some love because it's really, really stunning. Congratulations to her on her win. Um, Congratulations. Absolutely. And it was just a nice reminder that sort of irrespective of what it is that we do professionally, there are ways that we can shine light on the issues that are important to us. So I really appreciated seeing that. And I love that she won and, you know, we can continue to do more in this space. Absolutely. Even more than we realize. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's going to do it for this week on The Score. Before we go, um, today is Wednesday when we're recording, so this probably isn't coming out until Friday. But we do want to shout out that today is uh, Trans Day of Visibility, and we just want to tell all of our trans siblings and non-binary siblings that we love you and we see you, and congratulations, and we hope you're having a wonderful day. Um, and we are here standing beside you with our arms around you, loving mm-hmm. you every day. Doesn't matter that Visibility Day was Wednesday. 
we're loving you today tomorrow and always so uh thank you so much for joining us lee page as always it has been a wonderful pleasure Yes, absolutely. It's been wonderful. Kikiing with y'all. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I realized the last time I didn't say all of the patter. So subscribe, leave a review, share us with your friends. Make sure that all this black classical music opera goodness gets out into the world and into the ears of the people who need to hear it. And leaving a review helps Apple understand our existence or whatever i don't know how the algorithms work or whatever (laughs) um (laughs) but just leave us a five-star review and that would help us out a lot so i think that's it officially and we will see you in two weeks until then bye y'all bye everybody